Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, the best of Risk number 22, you'll hear Rayana Christian Dickens. And all I can think to myself is, is this how it happens? Is this how I touch another person's vagina for the first time? That and more. But first, are you in Seattle or Portland, Oregon? Pitch us your stories. We are in Seattle on November 18th. And there are three optional themes for stories that night. Perfection, or tradition, or losing. And we're in Portland, Oregon on November 19th. There are three optional themes for stories that night. Longing, or we were young, or costume. So, go to the submissions page at risk-show.com submissions to pitch us. And if you want to attend one of those shows, go to risk-show.com tour. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Room 34 behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode the Best of Risk number 22. We did our usual best of voting uh, for the past like six or so months. And we decided we had so many great stories, we wanted to make two episodes. So here is the second one of all that. Don't forget forget tell your friends and family anyone you think might like risk introduce them with these best of episodes because they're the best way to introduce someone we think 
And while you're talking to friends and family, ask them if they have a scary story they might want to pitch us over at wristdashshow.com slash submissions. If they're anywhere near New York City, they might even be cast in our October 20 Scary Stories live show. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from one of our very favorite storytellers, Christine Gentry. But before that, a story by David Who. Now, David's story called Silent Father is... Well, the story is all the more poignant because David's father has since that was recorded passed away. So our condolences to David and his family. But it certainly is a beautiful tribute But before David even, we're going to hear from Rayana Christian Dickens, their first time on the show, and they did such a wonderful job. Here is Rayana Christian Dickens now with a story we call Diva Cup Disaster. had a complicated relationship with womanhood. Growing up, I never really felt connected to other girls. Be that because I was black in an all-white town, or queer in the buckle of the Bible belt, or artistic. And I tried, I tried to do the things girls did and act the way girls acted, but at the end of the day, it was just never sincere. The girl I was was this character I constructed so that people wouldn't get the chance to judge the real me. And so I spent years deep in the closet, even after I fell in love with the blonde girl in my dance group. When I fried my hair with relaxer, trying to be like other girls. I want to tell you about one of the few times I really felt like I was a part of that woman club. I was 21 at the time, and I was walking home at about 10.30 at night, and I get a text from my coworker. We'll call her M. Now, M is just a little bit younger than me, and at the time, we were friendly coworkers, but not friends by any means. I answer the text, and she has asked me, have you ever used a diva cup? Now, if you're not familiar, a diva cup is a silicone bulb that you insert into the vagina during menstruation, uh, and it catches the blood. It's very good for your body, very good for the environment, very progressive, very feminist, that kind of thing. Still using tampons and pads? There's an alternative that women are raving about. Switch to the diva cup. It provides up to 12 hours of leak-free protection. I have not used one, but the thing is, I got married young enough that people are actively mean about it, and I'm also a tall, non-threatening, big-titty black woman. And you combine these two things, people seem to think I'm wise, despite the fact I am a dumbass. So I'm used to white girls asking me for advice. I put on mammy mode, and I respond. I haven't personally ever used them, but I've heard really good things about it. What's up? Is something wrong? And she responds... I got a diva cup stuck inside of me. Will you help me take it out? Plus, it's easy to use, clean, and incredibly comfortable. I'm so glad my girlfriends told me about it. What had happened was, M, our little Icarus, had 
flown too close to the sun, lost her virginity the night before, thought she was grown, and was now squatting in her apartment having a panic attack, pantsless, with a diva cup stuck inside of her. I later found out that the first person she contacted was her mother, who responded, This seems like a one-person problem. She then texted me. Now, like I said, I am used to being the person people come to for advice and favors, but this gave me pause. And I had to stop and think to myself, what am I willing to do for the sake of altruism? But as I thought it over more and more, it came down to just doing it or not doing it, and the implications of not doing it were so clear to me. This poor 20-year-old girl waddling into an ER because all the urgent cares are closed, having to put her legs in the stirrups for the first time, being surrounded by doctors and nurses who are all giggling because for them, this is silly. The only thing worse than being in a real crisis is when it's only a crisis to you. And I thought about her sitting and stewing in that shame and confusion and embarrassment until she forgot that she didn't do anything wrong. So I took a deep breath and responded. Meet me in my apartment in 45 minutes. Bring gloves. With plans set, it was now time to inform my poor husband who was waiting at home. I texted him simply, Im got a diva cup stuck inside of her, she's coming over for me to get it out. He googled a diva cup, read the first line and went, I don't need to be involved, and texted me back, okay, I'll lock myself in the office. So, I get home and it is now time to construct an area conducive to the procedure. I lay out some towels on my bed, I set up some pillows for back support, I grabbed some lanterns because the lighting was really bad in my bedroom. Overall, I think I made a pretty good 10 minute gynecological office if I do say so myself. I hear a knock at the door and I go in to answer it, and Emma's standing there, red and puffy face, obviously been crying for hours, and she hugs me and the first thing she says is, I'm sorry if I stink, I've been stress sweating. We go into the bedroom, she takes her pants down and sits down on the bed, and while I am putting on the gloves that she got me, which were ribbed for grip, she FaceTimes another one of our coworkers. We'll call her Jay. Now Jay's job was supposed to be to keep him calm through the procedure. But as soon as Jay answers the phone, she is cackling. When Jay finally calms down, M lays down on the bed, and I put my hands on her knees, and as comforting as I can muster, I ask, Are you ready? And Jay falls apart again. M starts making this half-laugh, half-sobbing noise. When we finally calm down after like five minutes, she spreads her legs with much effort, and I am kneeling there, face-to-face -face with the labia majora of my coworker, and all I can think to myself is, is this how it happens? Is this how I touch another person's vagina for the first time? Like, as a queer femme, I kinda thought there would be more candles or incense and less blood and crying. At this point in my life, I had spent years unlearning internalized homophobia, reading queer theory, listening to Hozier, and this is what I get? This is how it happens? As a poor man's gynecologist? But. It was not the time for existential questioning. It was the time 
for action. So I take a deep breath and dive in there. Jay starts laughing again, M clenches, and I immediately realize that Diva Cup's going way further than I thought. This is gonna take a while. So after far too many minutes, I finally get my finger on the tail end of the Diva Cup, and I'm so excited that I just grab it and yank. Now, let me remind you that despite being a merry, tall, big-titty, non-threatening black woman, I am a dumbass. I had never used a Diva Cup before, and what I didn't know was Diva Cups work by forming a suction on the cervix. So when I yank, M bolts off the bed, and she screams and looks up at me and goes, Why didn't you break the seal? And I break character just long enough to go, I didn't know there was one! We take a break for M to recover from me ripping her cervix out of her body. Uh, we hydrate, we breathe, and we get back to it. After about 10 more minutes, I finally get to the Diva Cup again, and this time, I do break the seal, and as soon as I pull it out, M bursts into tears and she chokes out through her sobs, I'm just so happy! This was the point where Jay decided to take a screenshot of their call. And to this day, that picture of M's blurry, red, puffy face, with Jay laughing in the corner, is still up on M's Instagram, along with a picture of us hugging, uh, with the caption, and I quote, Let me tell you a story, friends. Today, I got a diva cup stuck in my vagina, and my best coworker Ray fished it out for me. Yeet. You know, sometimes I resent being the mom friend. I resent having to take care of people, but I think about times like this. Times I genuinely got to make someone feel safe and secure. And I think about all the times that I didn't have that. All those times I wished I had this mythical, magical, yonic sisterhood to hold me and guide me. Being a woman, becoming a woman, living as a woman, it's hard. It's painful and scary and alienating. It's hard. But there's no reason to make it harder by doing it alone. That's why over 90% of women who tried the Diva Cup said they'd recommend it. I'm so glad my girlfriend's joined me. Ladies and gentlemen, David Hume. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So growing up, I never had an emotional connection with my dad. He worked a lot of hours at a restaurant in Chinatown as a waiter, and there was a language barrier between us. See, my dad doesn't speak English very well, and he always talked to my mom in Chinese. 
I don't speak it nor understand Chinese, so as a kid, I felt like I was raised by two spies. <laughs> Although we never had much to say, my dad was loving in other ways. I remember when I was like 10 years old. I'm sound asleep, it's late at night, and I felt a cold hand wiggle my foot. I woke up startled, and I'm half asleep, and all I see is this black silhouette at the end of my bed. And now I realize it's my dad with a big smile on his face. And all he wanted to say was, good night. <laughs> the next morning, I wake up and I find toys scattered all over my bed. These are toys that kids left at the restaurant the night before, regifted by this man of a few words. I call my dad. And I felt really special, regardless if the toys are used and they always smell like Chinese takeout. Every morning felt like Christmas Day. And my dad always had my back. I remember when I was seven years old, I was a first grader in Catholic school. And one afternoon, I had to use the bathroom really bad. And my teacher at the time was Sister Louis Agnes Marie. She was a nun that always wore a long white habit. And I walked up to her and I was like saying, hey, can I please be excused? And she said, no. When I returned back to my desk, I wet my pants. And everyone in the class laughed at me. As I sat there in my piss-soaked pants, I felt like a sideshow freak. It was so embarrassing. And my dad walked into the class, and the first thing he did was he lifted me up by my armpits, and he hugged me. Aww. I was surprised. I never had my dad hug me in my entire life. However, I felt so safe in his arms. And I hear Sister Louise Agnes Reed scream at my dad, You see your kid? He made a mess. He ruined my lesson. And I just started to cry. And I just buried my face in my dad's shoulder like a turtle in its shell. And my dad said, he's seven years old. How come you don't let him to your bathroom? Why make trouble? Aww. As we walked out of the class, my dad whispered in my ear, okay, we'll go home. After that day, I never went back to Catholic school. And I started my education at public school. <sighs> in 2018, my dad started to struggle with common things we take for granted every day. I remember I had a phone conversation with my mom one evening about my dad. She sounded really worried and concerned. David, David, what? David, dad is acting really funny lately. Mom, what do you mean by funny? Okay, okay. This afternoon, I heard someone banging the door. Bang, 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 bang. I said, okay, okay. I'll go downstairs. Look out the window. Dad, struggling with the key. And he like forgot what he's doing. Mom, dad is ridiculous. Dad did not forget how to put a key in a door. The front door is awfully old. What you need to do is you need to put some oil in the lock. No, 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 no. I used the door this morning. It's fine. Dad, forget. And also, I wanted to tell you a long time ago, but you were so busy, busy, busy. I walked in the kitchen one day. So hot. Mom, you ever thought about opening up the window? Well, I opened up the window and it smelled gas. The stove was on. Your dad left it on. Not the first time. He does it all the time now. Oh, my God. It was alarming and quite concerning because the house could have went up in flames and both my parents would have been injured. So I was like, mom, this is what you do. You go and screw each knob off from the stove and I'm gonna be back home this weekend. So I spent that weekend over my folks' house in the Bronx. And that afternoon, I saw my dad walking around with money sticking out of his pockets of his pants and falling on the floor without him realizing it. It was upsetting because this is money I gave him. And it was unlike my dad because he was always very careful with how he handled his money. And that evening, I told my mom what happened. And she was like, David, David, I want to tell you something. Dad is 83 years old, and he's starting to have Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's, really, Mom? 
Should we at least see a doctor to get a second opinion? Why? Why see a doctor? What's the doctor going to say? Doctor going to say he's old. He's 83 years old. He's starting to have Alzheimer's. My mom, she's overbearing, she's dramatic, and she's stubborn. I love her, and she needs well. But trying to reason with this woman is like trying to fight City Hall. You're going to lose. <laughs> Fuck. In the summer of 2019, my dad went from forgetful to delusional. When I got a call from work one afternoon from my mom telling me that she was at the supermarket, and she got a call from our next-door neighbor, Scott, and Scott was saying that my dad walked up to him, acting all frantic, telling him that he sees people running around covered in blood. Call the police now. After my mom told me that, I was speechless. And I felt this bottomless pit in my stomach and literally all the air being sucked out of my lungs with a vacuum. It was morbid, it was disturbing, and it was unlike my dad. Luckily, he didn't get arrested or even worse. And my mom just sounded so physically and emotionally drained on the phone. David, David, I'm 73 years old. I take care to your dad all the time. I clean, I cook, I watch him. I don't have time to go to the supermarket. You understand? I'm tired. I need help. I need help. And I felt really bad. So that summer, I spent every weekend at my folks' house in Bronx to help him out. So one afternoon, I walked by my dad's bedroom. And I see him sitting there by his table. Staring outside the window, aimlessly, with this catatonic look on his face. And I hear the static noise from his portable radio. <coughs> it's really irritating. It's like a perfect reflection of my dad's mental state right now. And ironically, my dad still has a calendar hanging on his wall from 2018. The year my dad started to lose his mind. It's sad, and I'm about to cry. And then suddenly, I see my dad lean up towards the window, and he starts waving outside. I'm curious, what is he waving at? So I look outside the window, and all I see is just two big pine trees in our backyard. I'm like, Dad, what are you waving at? People tree, people tree, people tree. I said, Dad, there's people in the tree? Really? And I started laughing. I thought it was kind of comical, so I started waving outside as well. People tree, people tree, people tree, to give him some encouragement. The next morning, I get rudely awakened by pounding noises in my dad's bedroom. I walk into my dad's bedroom, and I see him on his bed, and he's wrestling his pillow, and he's tying the pillowcase's knots, and he's just beating the shit out of it to say, I got it! I got it! It's in there! And I just stare at him. It's disturbing, it's sad, and my mind is spinning. And what I do is I grab that pillow out of his hand and I rip the pillowcase open and I show it to him, Dad, it's just a pillow. There's nothing in there other than a pillow. He finally comes to the realization it's just a pillow and he's really embarrassed and he starts apologizing profusely. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Dad, it's okay as I replace the pillowcase. That afternoon, I'm talking to my mom about my dad. Mom. I think dad is bored and he's getting really frustrated because all he does is spend his time in his bedroom. I want to take him for a walk in the park. No, why take him for a walk? Why? He's going to get confused. Don't do that. Don't do that. You take him for a walk. You want to go out for a walk again and again and again? Yeah, mom, because he's a human being, not a caged animal. No, you want to walk outside? There's a backyard. 
Now I understand why my mom is so physically and emotionally drained. She's so stubborn and set in her ways. I am exhausted arguing with this lady. And I go to sleep. And I wake up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom. I walk into the bathroom. I step in a puddle of water. What the hell? I turn on the lights. It smells like a men's restroom at Yankee Stadium. And the bathroom floor and the toilet seat is covered in piss. Fuck. And my dad is standing behind me. I'm like startled. And he has this big smile on his face. And he says, David, good boy. Really good boy. I'm confused. And I look down. And his old Navy cargo shorts are tattered and ripped and soaked in urine. The pressure from my mom and my frustration with how my dad is acting because I can't come to terms with who he is. He's not the man he used to be. Just comes caving down on me. And all I can do is just put my hands on my face. I feel like Macaulay Culkin from Home Alone. And all I do is say, Mom, Mom, Dad, what the floor? Dad, what the floor? And my dad started acting all frantic. What, what happened? What happened? Why is there so much water? What is going on? What, what, what are you talking about? And I just stare at my dad. I suddenly see a reflection of myself when I was seven years old, when I wet my pants in first grade. And I just hug my dad and I squeeze in as tight as I can. And I don't give a shit. I'm covered in piss and I smell like a men's bathroom at Yankee Stadium. He's my dad and I love him unconditionally. And my mom walks into the bathroom and she's scrubbing the floor with Clorox bleach. The pungent smell of bleach starts burning my nostrils and I start to tear up and cry as I embrace my dad in my arms. That's my story. met the man I'm going to call Ethan, I was really excited. I had been looking for a long time for someone who could challenge me because my last serious relationship had been with someone who worshipped the ground that I walked on. And I thought that's what I wanted, but it actually turned me into a really terrible version of myself. So I knew that I needed somebody who could challenge me, who could call me out when I needed to be called out. And this guy did it on the first date and I was totally smitten. And at the time, I was rabidly insecure about my body, about how I looked. I was totally uncomfortable in my own skin, and I had put this into this emotional quarantine space inside of me, and I had put it behind a thick locked door, and that allowed me on the outside to be this really outgoing, confident, self-assured person, and that's who most people met. And that night, that's who Ethan met, but after a few months, I was like, let's see, right? Let's, let's see if I can let him into that space, and I did. I let him see all of me, I let him see who I really was, and he made me feel beautiful. 
And I was like, well, that's it. You know, you can stay. <laughs> if you accept that part of me that I think is so ugly, you can stay. And I gave him the key to that space behind that door. And of course, at the time, there were red flags that I can see now. He was very possessive. Like one of our first fights was that I had had dinner with somebody who was an ex but had long ago become a friend and it was a huge deal, a huge fight. And I said, okay, like I won't see that person anymore. (laughs) He was also really controlling, particularly sexually. He would pressure me to do things that I knew I didn't like, that I knew I didn't want to do. And he would say, well, if you know you don't like them, it's because you've done them with someone else. And if you've done them with someone else, then if you really love me, you'll do it with me too. And he would also hurt me during sex without my consent. And I remember one time I had this terrible bruise. Uh, It was like black, blue, purple on my breast. And I sent him a picture of it. And I half-jokingly said, like, oh, I'm going to report you. And he said, no judge would ever believe that wasn't consensual. And he could also be really scary, even early on. Like, we were having a really bad fight once, of course, because we were always fighting. And we had a really bad fight once at a bar, and we were with all of his friends, and I was so embarrassed that we were fighting in front of his friends. I asked him, can we please go outside? And you know in New York City, they have those grates, right, that the stores put down, those metal grates that they put down at night. And Ethan was a big man. He played football in undergrad. And he used his body to back me up against one of those grates. And he pinned me. And he was yelling the most vile things in my face, jabbing his finger in my face, and my face was just covered with his spit. And it was so bad that a stranger stopped and started videotaping us. And when he noticed it, I thought he was going to kill him. And I had to get between them, and, I, and the guy just kept taping, and he said, what you're doing to this woman is unacceptable. It's not okay. And I looked at this stranger, and I was like, I know that you're trying to help me, but you're really not. Like, you're making it a lot worse. Like, I need you to please stop. And he did. He shook his head, and he walked away. And the next day, I frantically searched, like, all of social media, all of YouTube, like, abusive relationship New York, man-woman fighting outside of bar in New York. Like, I was just so afraid that I would be outed as being in this terribly toxic relationship and I'm not the woman who does that. Like, that's not me. I don't do that. And after that night, I made him promise that he would go to couples therapy with me and he agreed. So we started going, but it wasn't fixing anything. I mean, like we would literally leave the therapist's office and fight in the elevator on the way down. Our fights just kept getting worse and worse. And one night we were at my apartment and he was in the bathroom and his phone went off and I looked at the notification on the screen and it was from a female friend of his who I'd met and it just said, are you single yet? And I couldn't pretend that I hadn't seen it. Like, <laughs> like when he came in, I was crying. He asked me what was wrong. I told him and he just snapped. He was like, did you look at my fucking phone? And I reached for the phone to show him that it was just the notification. I'd seen it on the lock screen, but I didn't have a chance to say anything. Like, as soon as I picked up the phone, he slapped it out of my hand and went skittering across the room. He grabbed my elbow so hard, he swung me around, threw me on my own bed, put his hands around my throat, and put all of his weight 
into me. And I just like, I just flailed. Like I flailed, like trying so hard to get out from under his hands. And I landed a punch on his nose and he reeled back and I could see there was blood. And he's shocked, he ran to the bathroom. And I took everything that he had left in my room and I threw it out into my living room and I said, get out, get out. And when he came out of the bathroom and saw his stuff had been thrown in the living room, he started swiping every possession I had off of every surface on the apartment, just breaking things, swiping things off. And he went for my computer. All my dissertation stuff was on that computer. And I got between him and the computer. I said, please, please stop. And he grabbed my ankle and he pulled it out from underneath me and I fell, my entire body weight fell on the left side of my body. I had bruises all down the left side. And he went back into the bathroom to clean himself up. And I grabbed my phone and I called the cops and I put it on speakerphone so he could hear what I was doing. And he came out of the bathroom and said, you're calling the cops? And he grabbed all of the things that I had thrown in the living room and he left. And after he left, I stood in front of the mirror and I looked at who I had let myself become. And the bruises were already spreading on my neck like ink spilled on paper. And I put a turtleneck on before the cops got there on purpose. And when they arrived, I am so embarrassed to tell you that I told them everything was fine and I'm sorry. Please leave. And as far as anyone in my life knew, that was the night that I officially left Ethan. And I wanted so badly to break free from this man, from this relationship, but I had let him in that space. I had let him in that space. I had given him the key and he had swallowed it and I could not get him out. He would call, he would leave these sobbing voicemails, he would send flowers, he taught himself how to knit, he would send me beanies with like messages stitched inside of them. And I would show up, I would show up at his house late at night, and in my shame I would leave early in the morning to get home before my roommate woke up because no one in my life knew that I kept seeing this man after what had happened. No one knew including my best friend in the whole world who totally suspected and kept asking me. And that's when I learned that keeping secrets has physical consequences. Because I got ulcers for the first time in my life. I would wake up in the middle of the night with a searing pain in my ear from grinding my teeth so hard at night. And I had been doing this for months. When one day I got up and joined the rest of New York City in the 7 a.m. rush hour because I had jury duty downtown. And I'm on the train and I'm totally just spaced out, standing up, holding the pole. And I'm looking at the head of this man who's sitting down in front of me. And he's got this big duffel bag. It's between his legs. And we get to 42nd Street, Times Square. And people get off and people get on and there's the announcement like stand clear of the closing doors, please. And then this man bursts out of his seat and he jumps over his own bag 
And he shoves me and a whole bunch of other people out of the way so that he could squeeze out of the doors like just as they shut. And the train lurches forward. And I don't know if you've ever been animal afraid, but it's terrible. Like here we were under Times Square in a crowded train in New York City hurtling toward Penn Station with this duffel bag that had so clearly been left on purpose in this wave of panic starts with this small circle of us around the bag and it spreads to the whole car and people start freaking out and they're trying to get out of the doors on either side but they're locked and someone says pull the emergency brake and someone else says don't do that don't do that you'll you'll trap us underground with the bag and i'm just paralyzed looking at this thing this bag it's right here in front of me like all those if you see something say something announcements like this is happening like this is now this is me And this loud New York accent bursts over all of the noise. And a guy says, move out of the way. This is dumb. This is nothing. He's pushing his way through the crowd. It's one of the passengers. (laughs) And he goes, this, I'll show you. This is nothing. And everybody around the bag was like, don't you touch that bag. Don't you touch that bag. And he was like, shut up. Get out of the way. He grabs the bag. He rips it open. He starts pulling out clothes. It's just clothes. He's throwing them up into the air so the whole car can see. It's just clothes. And the bag is empty. He holds it over his head. The guy just left his bag. Shut up. And as if it was like a single organism, the whole car was like, oh. But I can't. I'm so freaked out. Like my heart is beating out of my chest. And when we finally get to 34th Street, I get off the train. I'm like, I would rather be late to jury duty than be on this train like one more minute. And I'm sitting on that platform and I'm waiting for the next train. And my knees are shaking so bad. Y'all, I'm not sure I can stand. And I just keep, I just keep thinking about this Mary Oliver quote, you know, like, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? (laughs) When I finally get above ground in Canal Street, my phone vibrates in my hand, and it's Ethan. And he says, I love you, I miss you, can I see you tonight? And for the first time, it is so easy not to respond. Thank you. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is, I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, 
how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? risk this is soccer mommy behind me now and we just heard from christine gentry who you can find at christinegentry.net before that a little snippet of a song by weezer and before that david who folks the storystudio.org is where you'll find our storytelling training and corporate workshops just go to the Org. And if you go to patreon.com slash risk and become a member or raise your donation if you're already making one, listen, you will have so many hours of bonus content over there, extra stories, interviews, audio journals, so much great stuff. And it's incredibly necessary to keep the show running. We very much rely and we're very grateful for the support of our fans. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that is at paypal.me slash risk show. Our next three stories are just as amazing as the first three were. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Oz du Soleil. Before that, a little anecdote by Risk fan Danielle Meunier. But before that, a story by Paul Barak that he shared at one of our live streams before we started doing the live shows on stage again. So without further ado, here is Paul Barak with a story we call 
It's not about Star Wars. So in 2017, after a couple of just anvil-heavy times, in the spring, I decided to hike the Pacific Crest Trail, which was the best decision I could have made. You know, for six months out in that paradise, for the first time in years, I was happy, like, every day. And then I came back home and Trump was president, like, every day. And at first I was fine, but as the months wore on, I just started to get more and more depressed because not only did the world seem horribly wrong, but it also seemed like I was the only one who could see it. Because every time I tried to bring it up to people, they'd just kind of shrug and be like, yeah, man, it is what it is. Like they'd gotten used to it somehow while I was gone and moved on. But I never could. And so every day I'm just feeling more and more depressed and more and more isolated. And the only bright spot in that time was that I started dating my new girlfriend, Michelle. So by Christmas, I am just in the depths, still living at home, still unemployed, still 35 years old. And that's when my dad calls me up and goes, Paul, it's Christmas. Let's Go see a movie and get some Chinese food. And I'm like, yeah, being Jewish is awesome. (laughs) I will get my coat. So me, my parents, and my sister all climb into the car, and we head out to see the new Star Wars. Now, I'm not the biggest Star Wars fan. Like, the originals are classics, and the prequels aren't. (laughs) And, you know, I thought The Force Awakens was okay. But this one, I am actually really excited for because all the reviews are talking about how adult and dark and complex it is. And I'm thinking, of course it is. It's directed by Ryan Johnson. Mm. I mean, this is the guy that did Looper. He did Brick. He did three of the best episodes of Breaking Bad. Mm. So I'm not only pretty excited, but I'm also kind of hopeful that... I'm going to be able to connect to this dark adult movie and maybe just not feel so alone. You know, if just for a couple hours. So we get to the theater, like the excitement's up. I got my popcorn. I sit down. The theater lights lower. The horns blare. The scroll starts and we all cheer. And it takes about four minutes before I realize, uh, this is not a good movie. (laughs) Like, it's pretty bad. And as the movie's going on, I'm just getting madder and madder because it's not just that this movie is dumb, patronizing bullshit where nobody important dies and there's no consequence for anyone's mistakes and people's problems just get solved because whatever. I'm getting really mad because Star Wars is the exact problem I've been having since I got back from the Pacific Crest Trail. 
everyone told me that this movie was fine and it so clearly isn't, <laughs> and apparently I'm the only one who can see it. So, two and a half hours later, the movie ends, the lights come up, everyone cheers, and I am furious. <laughs> and I walk outside, and my dad goes, What'd you think? And I go, Dad, that movie was dumb, patronizing bullshit. There was no consequence for anyone's actions, and nobody important died. And my dad goes, yeah, Paul, it's a movie for 10-year-olds. Let's get some Chinese food. <laughs> so we're at the Chinese place, and I should be happy because it's Chinese food, which I love. And my family's there, which is fine. <laughs> but instead I am miserable because now we're all discussing politics which for my family means arguing about all the things we agree on and no one wants to talk about how bad that movie was they just moved on and I'm trying to hold up my end of the conversation but all I want to do is just push my chair away from the table, walk outside, and start crying because I just feel so alone right now. So the check comes, we get home, my parents are sitting upstairs, and my sister too, quietly reading, and meanwhile, I'm downstairs in my childhood bedroom just pacing back and forth, back and forth, needing to vent to somebody about how shitty this movie was, and that's when my phone buzzes with a text from Michelle that reads, Hey babe, still out with my family, but I'll be free in 10 minutes. Is that a good time for a call? Love you. And without thinking, I text back, 10 minutes sounds great, babe. Love you. And then hit send like an idiot. Throw my phone down and think, shit, I can't talk to her. I'm still too mad about Star Wars. And the thing is, I will not fuck this up. Like, it's only been a couple of months, but I am in love with Michelle. She is amazing. She's so kind and smart and funny and sings in an 80s cover band <laughs> and has just a bunch of amazing laughs. And beyond that, she's unlike anyone else I've ever dated. She's really positive and upbeat. You know, she has no history of depression or trauma. So she's not going to understand this at all. <laughs> and I am not about to lose my relationship over a movie for 10-year-olds. But I don't know what to do. You know? Like, I can't call my friends about this because it's Christmas. They're busy. And I can't talk to my family about this because they thought Star Wars was fine. And I need to vent to somebody right now so that I don't sound like a crazy person. So I call the crisis line. <laughs> and I'm put on hold because it's Christmas. They're busy. And I'm still pacing back and forth, feeling these minutes ticking down until Michelle calls and finally someone picks up and goes, hey man, my name is Justin. Thank you for calling. What's going on? Uh, why, are you, why are you reaching out to us tonight? 
And I go, okay, Justin, look. I know that it is Christmas, and I know that there are people calling in with real problems, so I'm going to talk to you real quick about this one thing, and then I'm going to hang up, and you can go back to helping the people who really need it. And Justin goes, no, man. No. We don't, we don't look at it like that. We don't judge you. Whatever you're calling about has gotten you so upset and in so much pain that you reached out to us tonight. So... Whatever it is, man, it's okay. You can tell me. I go, okay, Justin, the new Star Wars sucked. (laughs) And Justin says, okay. A little judgy, I think, by the way. But I don't have time. So I just go off about the plot and about the characters and about how nobody important died and there was no consequence for anyone's mistakes and I'm just ramping up and ramping up until I'm nearly yelling in my childhood bedroom about how happy I was when I was on the Pacific Crest Trail and now I'm back and everyone told me that this movie was fine and it so clearly isn't and nobody but me can see how bad this movie is. (laughs) And Justin goes... Yeah, man. Yeah, that sounds really frustrating. Uh, Is there anything else going on? And without thinking, I shoot back. Well, I mean, two of my past girlfriends killed themselves in just over a year of each other. Whoa. Whoa. And Justin says... Oh. So this isn't really about Star Wars, then, is it, Paul? And I shoot back, well, now that you mention it, Justin, not entirely. But it is not a good movie. And then I thanked him repeatedly and hung up and called Michelle, and we did not talk about Star Wars. So the plan worked. But... You know, then a day later, I, I told her about it because uh, honesty is important in a relationship. And honestly, eh, it's, it's kind of a funny story. <laughs> and, you know, she knew my situation and she laughed. And then she told her parents about it and they didn't laugh. <laughs> because she is dating someone who's had two girlfriends kill themselves and also <laughs> called the crisis line on Jesus's birthday to yell about a kid's movie. <laughs> So these are not good signs, but you know, between us, it's a joke, you know? And so we tell our friends and they laugh, but a couple of my friends after I finish do ask, uh, but seriously, Paul, are you doing okay? And I'd be like, yeah, yeah. It's just a funny story. You know, like, why are you asking? If I can joke about it, that means I'm past it. Why dig in? You know, just like if people asked about the suicides, I'd say, yeah, the first one happened in 2015 and the second one happened in 2016. The second one was traumatic and the first one dimmed the sun. You know, why dig into that more? It's sad as hell. Besides, therapy is really expensive and I am still barely employed and I've made it this far. So... Me and Michelle keep dating. We move in together. 
and we're just getting more and more serious. Meanwhile, so are my problems. Believe it or not, Star Wars is not the only thing that I'm getting irrationally angry about. You know, there's also memory problems. You know, I, I can't remember how to drive to places I've been hundreds of times before or remember the name of anyone unless they're like a close friend or a family member or any character on Game of Thrones. <laughs> and then there's the worst one, which is that if Michelle is late driving back from band practice or work, I just start trembling with panic as I just become more and more convinced that she's died in a car accident, uh, which isn't a comment on her driving, mostly. <laughs> it's just that, you know, she's so upbeat. I knew it wasn't in her personality to kill herself, but I was also terrified that she was going to die somehow because cause I was finally happy again. Mm. So why wouldn't it happen again? Through this whole thing, Michelle is so kind and so understanding. I know that I'm going to marry her. And I also know that my problems aren't getting better and that it's not fair to either of us to keep laughing this off forever. So I finally sit down and put in the work and find a low-cost therapist that I can afford. And a month later... I take a seat in this unfurnished office that he shares in an industrial part of town, turn to him and say, my first girlfriend, Meredith, and I dated for a year. And then I broke it off with her because I didn't realize how in love I still was with my best friend. I tried to get her back for a whole year. And then two weeks after we did finally get back together and start planning our future, she hung herself. She'd been suffering from horrible migraines for a week and chronic pain for a lifetime and couldn't afford the health care to treat it. And there's not a day that goes by that does not hurt. My other girlfriend, Willow, and I dated for a much shorter time. Really intimate, caring, long-distance relationship that soured because she wanted more than I could give and we had different expectations of what being in an open relationship while we were in different states meant. She felt like I cheated on her and a week into a lot of phone calls discussing if we were going to stay together, I called her up one night and she was drunk and talking about taking so many pills that she wouldn't wake up the next day. Even though I was living through my worst nightmare, I frantically texted all of her friends and kept her on the phone until I found someone who could check in on her. And when they did, she brushed it off and said I was overreacting. The next day I broke up with her because I knew that I could not survive even the threat of another suicide. She killed herself the next day. And sometimes... It really scares me that I'm still standing. And the therapist said, okay. And for the next hour, we didn't talk about the new Star Wars at all. Which, to be clear, is not a good movie. <laughs>
Paul Barack, everybody. Paul Barack. Wow. My first job out of college was for a financial services firm in Boston, downtown financial district. I thought it was so cool. It's the sort of place where we'd take clients out to dinner, people who managed billion-dollar funds, and all these men, 15, 20 years my senior, would order steak and whiskey or whatever manly drink there is. And I would say... Uh, yes, I'll have the salmon and red wine, please. And whenever anyone talked to me, I was like, I am going to be an expert conversationalist. So one day, get into work, sit in my cubicle. My colleague, Edwin, walks by. Super nice guy, but we come from different worlds. He wears cufflinks and an Hermes belt buckle. Has always nicely coiffed hair. I'm a sweet nice Midwestern girl just trying to fit in to East Coast Boston life. Kind of is heading to his office and then he pauses and looks at me and saddles up to my cubicle and says, hey Danielle, how was your evening last night? What'd you, what'd you do? I said, oh, I played Guitar Hero all night. It was so fun. And I start mimicking green, yellow, red, green, yellow, red, yellow, red, yellow, red. And he's looking at me like, uh, okay. Kind of leans back a bit. I was playing this one song for two hours. And now he's just incredulous. Like, that is so undignified. Or <laughs> why would someone do that? He's like, uh, okay. <laughs> what song were you playing? I'm like, oh, um, I was dumbfounded. I couldn't remember. I'm just showing him with my fingers. Green, yellow, red, yellow, red, yellow, red, green, yellow, red. No, no, no trying to come up with the song. I'm like, I, I don't remember exactly, but it's a song you know. It's very popular in the 80s hair band. And he's just like, okay, whatever. And he goes back to his office. It was one of those days where you just like have something at the back of your brain, kind of right above your neck, just like tapping at you, gnawing at you. You don't really know what it is. And I'm just kind of working on my reports all day, my TPS reports. This thing is there. It's there. Dun, 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 dun. Lock the cellar door and baby. Hours later, working on this report. Lock the cellar door. And I'm like, oh, right, yes. Pull up instant messenger. Find my colleague's name. Message him. Talk dirty to me. I'm completely tickled. I remember the name of the song. Perfect. That little gnawing at the back of my neck can go away. Pull up my report, keep working on it. I remember hearing Edwin's chair move back. And he kind of gets up and he just pokes his head out of, out of his office. He doesn't even come out fully. And he just kind of looks at me quizzically. And I look up and I tilt my head, kind of give him a half smile. Like, yeah, yeah, I remembered and he goes back to his office and he sits down and I'm working on my report. And then this 
instant message back to me, a single solitary question mark, just that question mark staring at me. And I'm like, huh? Oh, no, 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 no. I didn't message my colleague. Talk dirty to me. I messaged. Talk dirty to me. My whole body just started to fill with dread. I could feel myself turning red. Hunch over the keyboard, caps lock on, looking straight down. Oh my God, that is the song I was playing last night. That's the song I was playing for two hours. I didn't mean to sext my colleague. I'm a nice Midwestern girl. I would never do that. And then I just hear my colleague laughing, that confident laugh in his office. And I'm just bright red. morning I walked into my job at this small retail store I get inside and there is the manager on the other side of the counter Oz can I talk to you for a second he's like 6'3 wears glasses and his black hair is pulled back into this long ponytail and he's one of these people that doesn't make a lot of eye contact so he's looking over my shoulder. Oz, uh, I was talking with the owner and uh, <laughs> uh, we decided to give you your two weeks notice. So um, <laughs> uh, your last day is going to be the 31st of October. He would always do this nervous laugh whenever he had to deliver bad news. He was supposed to take the edge off but it was just making it worse and I wanted to smack him. My last day would be the 31st of October, the same day that the lease on my apartment ends. Oh boy. I've got two roommates. One has decided he's leaving Chicago and going to California. The other one, He's already found an apartment by himself that he's going to be moving into. I can't afford the current three-bedroom apartment by myself, and now things are worse. I don't have an employer that a potential landlord can contact. My apartment shopping is over. I have got to figure out what I am going to do on October 31st. Let me tell you. Years later, I ran into one of the managers from the shop and um, I asked him, what was that all about? Getting fired out of nowhere. And he had that gesture of, I'll tell you if you really want to know. And I waited for him to speak up and he said, "Okay, you ask too many questions 
and the owner of the store was cooking the books. There you go. Wow. Okay. So on October 31st, I moved all of my stuff out of the apartment and into a storage unit. I closed it, locked it up, walked out into the Chicago streets, and I was just going to figure things out. Now, I had a couple thousand dollars in the bank. I was drawing about $300 a week in unemployment. Not enough to get an apartment, but enough to keep me alive. I spent about $75 on an adult continuing education class at a college downtown Chicago just so I could have access to the building. If somebody saw me sleeping, they might wake me up, ask to see an ID. I show the ID, I go back to sleep. So I never was truly out on the streets. I just didn't live anywhere. I was one of the invisible homeless. Going and staying with my mother wasn't a viable option. For one, she was about 50 miles north of Chicago. Second, she lived in government housing. And there's all kinds of rules, restrictions, and complications if I wanted to go move there. I joined the Navy when I was 20, and here I am at almost 27 years old, and it felt like I was picking my life up right from when I was 20 years old. At the end of a sailor's enlistment, there is pressure to re-enlist. When it got clear to my higher-ups that I was not going to re-enlist, I was bunched in with a bunch of other guys who also weren't re-enlisting, and we were pretty much left for dead, and we would go to these half-assed workshops. They were supposed to help us transition into civilian life, but they really didn't. When I got out into civilian life, there was a whole lot of weird stuff to deal with. All of the talk about, thank you for your service, America loves its veterans, and then corporate America and all of their diversity programs. It all felt like a bunch of hogwash. I felt tricked, I felt stupid, I was lost, I didn't get it. I got increasingly bitter, and for a lot of years, I could not stand hearing, thank you for your service. Homelessness was strange in ways that aren't obvious. For one, there is all the thinking. Even sleeping at the school, I had to look like I was an exhausted student that needed a nap and not like a homeless guy who'd been up walking the streets all night going from one 24-hour cafe to another. I had to be creative about how I killed time. That often meant a lot of walking in the cold Chicago winters. If I had to get somewhere at a certain time, a bus might get me there too fast. So I had to choose being out in the cold to kill time over 
being warm and getting to a place too fast. I recall a lady who was trying to help me. She told me about a friend of hers who was hiring and that he was having an orientation the next evening. And when I saw her again, I admitted I did not go to the orientation. And she gave me this look of contempt, like I had made a fool of her, that I looked serious, like I was really trying to help myself, but I'm full of shit. She was done with me. But I didn't tell her that I contacted him. And he was all evasive about what the job was. Is it in a mail room? Is it computer work? What is this job? He just kept telling me to come on down. I'd be perfect for it. Well, he didn't know me. How did he know I was perfect for anything? I had heard these conversations before. I put on my suit and I go and it turns out to be a multi-level marketing scheme. They're often dismissed as pyramid schemes, not a real job. That's why I didn't go. But this lady was done with me. One thing that gets me is if somebody's falling on hard times, they're unemployed, other people are saying, do anything. You got to support your family. Go flip burgers if you have to. Well, underemployment is a tough hole to dig out of. And imagine an accountant who's making maybe $70,000 a year and some wrong shit happens and they do wind up I'm going to flip burgers if that's what it takes to support my family. Well, no, you're not going to be able to support a family on McDonald's. Also, when things start to come back together and then that accountant has to go to interviews and explain why they spent 18 months working at McDonald's. They don't want to hear that proud I did anything to support my family. No, that don't work. Now that person has to fix a hole in their resume. They got to tell lies. It is hell coming up out of underemployment and it is not a pride thing. Another strange thing about being homeless. See, I had gone to my P.O. box, got my unemployment check. Then I walked over to a check cashing place. And here's more of the thinking. Do I mail the check and have the full amount of the check in my bank, but I've got to mail it to the bank? Now, see, this is the mid 90s. Direct deposit and debit cards weren't a common thing yet. Right, so I would have to mail a check to my bank. Or I can take this check and pay the fees at a check cashing place. How important is it to have the money tonight versus in four days? 
This time, I needed the money tonight. So I get to the check cashing place, sign the back of the check. I've got my state ID, slide it under the bulletproof glass to the guy. And he looks at it and says, uh, I need a street address. I tell him I don't have a street address to give you. The state of Illinois mailed the unemployment check to the post office box. Well, what about the address on your ID? I don't live there anymore. Well, I'm going to need a street address. I don't have one to give you. He takes the check, walks about 15 feet behind him to his supervisor. This lady sitting at a desk. They're talking back and forth and looking at the check. Then she screams, Hey! We're going to need a street address. And I scream back through the bulletproof glass. I don't have a street address to give you. I've got the P.O. box there. Well, I know you don't live in a P.O. box. And if you do, it must be awfully crowded in there. Oh, that stung. That stung. And I thought to myself... You miserable, rotten bitch. In this warm building behind this bulletproof glass. I am not going to give her the pleasure of knowing the situation I'm in. So that she might have pity on me. Or she might have another smart ass comment. She slid my check back to the guy. He walked back up to right behind the bulletproof glass, slid the check back to me, and I walked out. But these places have cashed my checks before. So I walked maybe a half mile to another check cashing place and they cashed the check without any drama or any questions. So what? fuck was going on back at that other place I don't know my life centered around that P.O. box and one day I went to go get my mail and there was a postcard it said sorry you didn't get the job but we're gonna keep your resume on file the job had to do with stock market options during college, I had worked briefly at the Chicago Board Options Exchange. I never traded options, but that job description did not ask for somebody who had traded options. But if they asked me about a call or a put, a strike price, a break-even point, a butterfly spread, I had some sense of what that was. The job also called for a college degree. I had a degree in philosophy with a minor in economics. In the job hunt, folks had told me a common strategy is to bend and stretch the truth a little bit. And for where I was mentally and desperate, I believed that applying for this job took the least amount of bending and stretching. I wanted that job. 
But also, I hadn't been out of the Navy very long, and there was a lot of weird stuff about civilian life that yeah, it just didn't make any sense to me. I get feedback in the Navy, even though it might come with some motherfuckers and just a bunch of unnecessary nastiness. There's some feedback. But here's this postcard. Not even a letter in an envelope. No kind of, hey, thank you, but here's some weaknesses in your resume that you might want to tighten up. Or, we like your resume and you seem like somebody we ought to know about. So, please come in and let's see if we can find you something. No, none of that. I looked at the address. And it was a place about two blocks from where I was at the post office. And I start thinking, I wanted that job and I'm qualified for it. But here I am in some pants I've been wearing for three days. And I was wearing this vest, something like you'd see fishermen, our photographers wearing. It's got a lot of pockets and zippers and snaps and things on it. I kept my pager in there, my bus pass, whatever I needed. It was all handy in one pocket of pouch on this vest. And I decided, in spite of how I look, I'm going to go and have a Hollywood moment. Never mind this postcard that I didn't get the job. Never mind that I'm wearing this fisherman's vest. I am going to go over there and talk with this lady who signed this postcard, Lourdes Perez. I'm going to talk myself into that job. And five years from now, we're going to be at some ceremony and I'm going to be awarded some great prize for being a top employee. And we're going to laugh and tell a story about how I walked in there. I had the gumption backbone to show up and talk myself into that job in my fisherman's vest so I went over there I took the elevator up I got into this really small lobby and there's this young black guy behind the desk I say I would like to talk with Lourdes Perez he says uh yeah he looked real puzzled. And what would you like to talk with her about? Very humbly, I said, I got this postcard and I would just like to talk with her because I'm qualified for this job. I had no idea what I was going to say to Lourdes Perez if she came out. I was desperate. I needed a job. But he says, sorry, man, you didn't get the job. I can't call her out here for that. But come on, I'm qualified for the job. I just want to talk with her. His voice started raising and I could hear the agitation. You didn't get the job. There's nothing to talk with her about. Well, is she even here? There is nothing to talk about with her. You didn't get the job. And I'm trying to send waves to emote something to this guy. Brother, 
fellow black man. I'm out here in the world. My ass is showing. I need some help. But he just kept saying, you didn't get the job. So I decide to heighten this Hollywood moment. So I go and sit down and cross my legs. I had my backpack with me. I sat that down on the floor by my feet. And he said, you need to leave. No, I want to talk with Lourdes Perez. Now I'm starting to get nervous. This is not how it goes in Hollywood. This is not how it goes when I've heard panel discussions about people who've done creative things to get hired on their dream job. This was not going right. And people would come in, people who worked there, they would come in and go through the lobby, see the scowl on my face, look over at the guy behind the desk. Is everything okay? And he'd look and say, yeah, I got this. It's under control. Don't worry. And eventually he said he was going to call the police. And I just sat back in my chair and I looked at him. He said again, you need to leave. You didn't get the job. I see this isn't going right. And I need to get out of here. But now we've hit this kind of a showdown moment of me and him. That is not even about the job anymore. And now I am not going to say, hey, brother, I'm sorry. I still started this shit and you know I'm sorry I, I didn't know what to say I didn't know how to get out of this without feeling like a punk so I just sat there in this standoff and then I heard him he picked up the phone and he was saying yes I have somebody who needs to be escorted out of the building and he gave the address and the suite number Part of my mind starts thinking, oh, he's bluffing. He ain't called no police. But I'm sitting here trying to have this Hollywood moment that's evaporating. I don't want to get arrested. I don't want to just walk out and have him win. But what if he did call the police? Being arrested is not what I need right now. So I didn't even look back at the guy. I just grabbed my backpack and made this one sweeping move. Grabbed the backpack, opened the front door and out. I took the elevator back down to the main lobby. And as I was stepping off the elevator, there were two police officers coming in the revolving door. I don't know if they were coming for me. But I was nervous, and I'm glad that I got up and got out of there. I decided to walk over to the center where I would look for jobs. It was the Alumni Center, associated with the college that I graduated from. It's a small office, maybe five computers, copy machines, fax machines, lots of books. Whatever person needed to find a job. 
that hosts resume writing workshops, networking workshops. And the director there, nice lady, early 30s. She and I developed a rapport over the time that I would go there. We'd chat a little bit, joke a little bit. And I would do my thing, looking for a job and leave. So while I'm walking over there, after what happened in that lobby, I felt stupid. I felt angry. I was confused about what's real. What are the rules that I don't know about life? Something is wrong here, but I got to get it together. And I wasn't so sure that I should tell anybody about what happened in that lobby. Maybe I should just die with that secret. But when I got there, I decided that she would be the one person that I would tell about that lobby incident. She knew me, but she wasn't so close to where she knew me. She felt like she was a perfect closeness, perfect distance for me to share this with. And I told the lady at the center about what happened. She just kind of looked at me and said, wow, that's tough. And then I went on into the center, worked on my resume, looked for more jobs. And when I came back to the center a couple days later, before I could sit down in front of a computer, she says, hey, Oz, come here. She brought me into the office. She says, Oz, I am worried about you. And I got some phone numbers. One phone number was for the county mental health services. Another phone number was for the VA. I felt insulted. I felt angry. I don't need somebody monitoring my mental health. I need a job. I don't need to chase any more MLMs around the city. I need a job. I don't need to pray with anybody. I don't need a millionth person to look at my resume. I need a job, not these phone numbers. I politely accepted the phone numbers from her, thanked her. Then I went and found a computer to go look for jobs. When I left and I got outside, her words, I'm worried about you, came back. And there I realized I am coming unglued. And here is somebody who is willing to say something. So I went and I found a payphone. I called the VA. They told me to come over. I rode a bus. I got there and started this process of who am I? Yes, I'm a veteran. Why am I there? Because I got all this weird stuff going on and I'm homeless. I explained this whole story. I tell him about the lady at the center being worried about me and about the situation in that lobby. This doctor said, I'm going to give you two choices. One, check yourself in to the mental health ward now, or two, 
commit to doing this program we have. Veterans come from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day for about two months. There are different programs. There's counselors. If you need medications, we can try to take care of that as best we can. So you either check in or commit to this program. And I am not giving you the opportunity to go home and think about it. You've got to pick something right now. And I'm thinking that he probably can't make me do either one of these. But here is another person who sees that I am unraveling. So I told him that I would do the daily program. A lot of the activities in that program weren't so relevant to me, but they were a place for me to be. And I was around people and I was able to talk and get some kind of peace on a daily basis. I didn't have to think all the time. And this was a critical change in my trajectory. It still took about two years to get back to where I felt like I was a dignified, self-sufficient adult. The program helped me get a room at a YMCA. I wound up in California, staying with my brother for about a year. Then friends I stayed with back in the Chicago area. Then another VA program that helped me find a job. And they stayed on program participants about saving money and we'd be regularly asked how much money you got all right so I got stable and I got a job and eventually I was back on my own but it yeah it took about two years what I think about that day when I went to that lobby in that fishing vest insisting on talking to Lourdes Perez that was one of the lowest darkest moments of my whole period of homelessness and I'm thankful to that lady who said I am worried about you
that is all for this week's episode, folks. That was the best of risk number 22. And this is the Isley Brothers behind me now. We just heard from Oz du Soleil, a story where all of the music was composed by our audio editor, John LaSala. Folks, on October 20th, the Risk Live Show is at Caveat in New York City. It's 7 p.m. Eastern, simultaneously live-streamed on YouTube. You can get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. And folks, did you know that you can hire me personally for storytelling training? You can find me at kevinallison.com. And don't forget to check our website. You know, the tables of contents of every episode will let you know where you can find the storytellers, who did this or that song on the show. There's plenty of storytelling resources, you know, helpful videos and tips on how to craft stories right there on our website at risk-show.com. And follow us on our socials on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're at Risk show and on twitter and instagram i'm at the kevin allison you can discuss the show with fellow risk fans over on the risk podcast fans discussion group on facebook or our subreddit is risk podcast folks today's the day take a risk <laughs>